The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right, good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, June 13th, and at this hour, Jackie Toplitsky is among the country's elite residential real estate brokers, and as the leader of the Jackie Toplitsky team, a licensed associate broker at Douglas Elliman in New York, and Douglas Elliman in Florida, she has sold over $1 billion in real estate. That is impressive. Uh, to both buyers, sellers, investors in New York, Miami, South America, Europe, and Russia. We will talk to Jackie uh, a little bit in a minute. Also at this hour, what are the ins and outs of a, re- a rental real estate transaction in New York City? What about security deposits, wear and tear, and move in and move out? What are the issues that can take place? We will definitely... Uh, identify all of those for you and get into it. Plus, the panel is here in our second half hour for Hot Topics as usual. But first, I would like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. You are listening live to Good Morning New York Real Estate. I am your host, Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, the number is 1-866-472-5788. That is 1-866-472-5788. My guest today is no stranger to the world of New York real estate. She is a star. Jackie Toblitsky, and I'm going to read directly from your your website because I think it's pretty awesome. So the question is, who is Jackie Toblitsky? A, a real estate broker who has a billion dollars, sold a billion dollars in uh, Manhattan and Miami real estate. B, a loving mother. C, a former sergeant in the Israeli army. D, a board member of the UJA Federation of New York. Or E, all of the above. If you answered E, all of the above, you would have only a partially correct because while Jackie is all of the above, she is also much more. She was born in Santiago, Chile and raised in Israel, where she served as a sergeant in the Israeli army. She emerged from humble beginnings, but rose to the ranks to become the strong, talented and determined woman she is today. Jackie worked at an international travel and tourism company as a managing director and for a multinational firm based out of Spain as a senior level executive before finding her true passion, and that is residential real estate. Her business acumen and global experience fit perfectly with her chosen career and helped her to assist real estate's vast array of clientele. Success came naturally. Jackie was named Rookie of the Year uh, by MLBK. Then soon after, the Corcoran Group came calling, where she was also among the top 25 producers, Jackie recently received a personal, she received rather back when, a personal invitation from CEO Dottie Herman to join Douglas Elliman Real Estate, where she has been since 2003. Jackie was one of the very first in New York City residential real estate to successfully launch the team concept, and we're going to talk about that. Under her guidance, the Jackie Toblitsky team is consistently ranked among Douglas Elliman's top producers. In fact, they have sold more than a billion dollars, as I said at the top of the show, in New York and Miami real estate. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? 
Fine. Thank you in this beautiful summer day in uh, New York. A beautiful, hot summer day in New York for certain. Uh, and there's certainly not enough air conditioning in the studio this morning. I'm going crazy. Anyway, it's great to see you. You know, obviously, I've been in this business for a long time. I've certainly known uh, of you and your successes. And I want to ask you a couple of questions with regard to that. So you do business in New York City and in South Florida and more, really around the world. Tell us how you got to the levels of success. I mean, because in this business, it is not easy to achieve the levels of success that you have achieved, especially one would say if you're not from New York City proper. Tell it, give us a little background as to how you got to where you are after all of these years successfully in real estate. All right. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Vince, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on the show. My Very pleasure. excited. Um, so my first, uh, the, the first part of my answer will be hard work. And I know that everybody uses that, uh, you know, those two words, but it is really hard work. Uh, I always say that the challenge is not necessarily how to get to the top. The challenge is more how to stay at the top because every single day you have new people joining our business. Well you have younger people joining our business. You have star brokers that in our days, you know, when we started in the business, that was not even a thing. Um, and now you have to compete against all of the above. So it's not only competing against uh, people that started in the business when uh, we started in the business, but now you have to compete against all the new people that actually joined the business. So that's the main challenge. I, I, I like the way you say, you know, finding success is one thing, but staying at the top or staying successful is another. And comparing that to all of the, the competition that exist in this business. And again, I started in the business 15 years ago before the television series where all these hotshot brokers are running around, you know, giving the impression around the world that real estate is fun, it's easy, it's stressless, and it's lots of money and lucrative. But you know what? It can be, but for the most part, it isn't. No. So to work hard to get there uh, is well said and to stay there. So let me ask you then personally, how do you personally stay there and stay at the top of your game after all of these years? So basically, I don't take anything for granted. Um, I think that one of the main problems with successful <clears throat> brokers sometimes is that you say, okay, I made it, you know, now it's going to be the residual business that people are going to call me and list with me or buy with me or invest with me. Uh, but I have learned my lessons over the years that you cannot take anything for granted. You cannot assume anything in real estate. Uh, you have to stay on the top um, every single moment. So you have to reinvent yourself, not every year, almost I would say every moment. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and see uh, what are you not doing that other people are doing. Uh, you have to stay ahead of the curve. You cannot actually follow. You have to be a leader. And by the time that you do what you do best and people will copy you, you have to be already like three steps ahead of the game. I have said for years, and I've been in, in several careers before I became a real estate agent 15 years ago, and I think you know the term leader uh, is sometimes misunderstood, but you have to be a leader. You have to be in front of yourself, and you have to be in front of your competition, and you have to be in front of your marketplace, regardless of whatever you're selling, because that's what's going to get you the, the, the success that you, that, you achieve, that you are looking for, and also to stay there. So, what, what, you know, the, we, we've gone through uh, many iterations of markets over the last 18 months or so. In 2016, I would say probably wasn't the best or most lucrative market uh, for a lot of us in, in this business. What is, in your opinion, what is the current state of the market right now? 
Well, I think that um, 2016 was definitely we had a market correction and we all felt that we will start 2017 in a much better um, foot that we had um, or in a situation that we had in 2016. That lasted for a very short period of time. I would say that January, February, uh, we saw a, a, an uptick and mm-hmm. then suddenly we went into a flat line again. So with this flat line in, in place, we are all basically questioning ourselves, where are we, in which market, are we in the buyer's market, uh, definitely not in a seller's market, but the question is going to be, are we going to have another market correction in 2017, or was the market correction in 2016 enough? The volume is down, the volume meaning uh, the number of buyers out there is, uh, is down, and the other problem is people that want to upgrade themselves, so they want to sell in order to buy, the gap is still too big. So a lot of people are just staying put. How are the clients out there, sellers, sellers and buyers, and and in your case, working with a lot of investors, how are they confused with the market conditions today, or are they? They are confused uh, because there are a lot of things in the media saying that we have a glut in inventory. Yeah. The problem is that the glut in inventory is in the very very high end with the very high end um, uh, buildings, but you have. You know, you have pockets in the market that actually you don't have a lot of inventory. If you're looking into anywhere between like the two million to the five million dollar range, as an example, uh, we don't have a plenty of options, and the options that are out there are not necessarily the best options for people to buy. So that's where you have that gap where people are staying put, um, and you are not seeing a lot of new inventory coming into the market, especially in the resale. In the new development, that's a different story, uh, but also it's a different story as far as level of pricing. It's a whole different world, and I, I, I'm doing a new development project as we speak, and I, I'm running from you know two million uh, up to nine million, eight, mm-hmm. nine, nine, five, whatever. And it's interesting that middle of the road is really what's getting the most attention, but my four and a half million up units are not really getting too much attention at the at the moment. And I don't know, you know, in the last week, have I shown them twice? You know, that seems to be a lot. But in your opinion, what is not being reported uh, about the market and the international business sector right now? What is not being reported out there that we inside may know? So, you know, for every bad news, you have good news. So what are the good news? You have to look at the market in New York City, not over one year or two years. You have to look at it over, let's say, a span of five years to 10 years. So I'm telling all my investors from overseas and buyers that are looking and are hesitant, get into the market now because I can count on one hand how many times we have had a buyer's market in New York and we forget about that. And when we forget about that, then, you know, time goes by, market rebounds, and then people say, oh, I should have bought a year ago. Oh, I should have bought uh, several months ago. It's interesting because I, I completely and 100% agree with that. And and when people come to me and say, well, you know, I really like that apartment that you showed me, I don't know, three months ago. And then I say, well, it's gone because they come back and say, well, do you think I can uh, put an offer on that? Well, you know, no, you can't right now. So I think some of the things that we, we don't really maybe as, a, as an industry explain well to, to clients out there, customers out there is – because I think sometimes they don't want to hear this, is that, you know, if you find something and you identify something today and you think that it's right for you, regardless of the price point, you have to do it. You have to move on it. You have to buy it. And you have to, you know, lock it down. Yes, but you do have to be careful about the level of pricing that you're offering. And you shouldn't be shy. If you think That's that some, something is overpriced for today's market, 
So, you know, traditionally we used to say your opening offer should be 10% under the ask. But right now, if you see something overpriced, you can go 15%. You can go 20%. Well, that, 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 that's what I was getting at, and that's what I wanted to ask you. So um, I agree with that. And so at the end of the day, when, when they identify that this is a property that's right for them, and you're right, the price may be 10 or 15 in some cases, 20% higher than it should be. So what is the right strategy to go to a, to a, a listing agent or to a seller and say, listen, I want your house. I want your apartment. I, this is right for me, but you got to meet me somewhere in the middle on this price point because- Based on the current conditions today, the price is not correct. What, what, what do we do with that? Well, I mean, there are several things. We know things. how difficult it is. Absolutely. So, you know, usually we are very good as listing agents to do a price analysis when we put something on the market. But we don't do the same thing for our buyers. So, if you um, basically are using a very good uh, agent, you know, to represent you on the buying side, so that agent should do a price analysis as if you were putting that apartment on the market in today's market. And it's not only about looking at sold and closed and what is on the market, because what is on the market is a wish price. What is sold and closed is a reflection of a different market. Reality. So you really have to go into what is in contract. That's the only number that reflects right now the true market that you are now. That's the number that your agent should give you in order to make a decision if you should put an offer and at what level you should put the offer in. All right, we have to take a break and leave it there. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back with Jackie Toplitsky. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We are back with Jackie Toplitsky from Douglas Elliman, New York, uh, here today. So you do a lot of business in New York City and in South Florida and around the world. Tell us how um, 
you coordinate all of that. So you're you're working in New York, you're working in Florida, you're working in in Europe. How do you kind of coordinate? I know you have a team. We're going to get to that in a second, but how do you coordinate all that? Well, first of all, how did I even get get there? So um, the decision that I made uh, like five years ago to start in South Florida was because of my own clients. So I am originally from Chile. So um, uh, you know, more than forty percent Santiago. Okay, Santiago. Most, more of, uh, like I would say, 40% of my clientele is uh, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, um, and some in Colombia. So what I basically noticed is that all of these clients were buying in South Florida and buying in New York as well. So why to lose them in South, in South Florida? So that's why I decided to do that. Now, in order to do that, you have to have a plan, you have to have a strategy, and you have to have a team. You cannot do this on your own. So I have people on the ground in uh, South Florida. Um, Fernanda Moreno works for me, you know, full time. The other thing that helps a lot is the Douglas Aleman Network. So we have, you know, uh, we have, uh, I think now almost 10 offices in South Florida uh, or in Florida. And uh, so that helps a lot that we have the infrastructure. It's not like I had to open an office. I had to um, have access to information that I had to invent. No, everything is available to me. And uh, Douglas Aleman has now a great uh, name, you know, for the high-end inventory in uh, in Florida. So that's how I do it. You have to be very organized. You have to be very targeted. The difference also is that in South Florida, people come and tell you that they are coming for two or three or four days to buy real estate. Um, most of my clients don't live there 24-7. It's not like New York. So I still spend 80% of my time in New York, 20% of my time in Florida. So where where are those foreign buyers coming from? Are they coming from Europe? Are they coming from South America for the Miami or the, the South Florida marketplace? Where are they coming from? South Florida, <clears throat> definitely Latin America. That's number the number one market. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, I mean, the Brazilians were ruling in uh, South yeah. Florida. After the Brazilians, you had, you know, Venezuela, you had uh, uh, Colombia, you have Chile, you have Argentina, but it is the capital of Latin America. Right? No, there is no dispute. Is there any concern um, <clears throat> today with the South Florida marketplace with um, fear that we can get back to the, 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 the post-financial crisis here of 2008, 9, and 10, where the Florida market really took a very, very big hit and a very long time to bounce back? It bounced back beautifully, magnificently, and it's been strong and solid for a long time. But is there like an underlying thought or fear in some of the Latin American buyers, or even in the local buyers uh, in in the South Florida market, that we can get to that point again, because of the instability of the overall real estate market. Um, no, the answer is no, and I tell you why. There is a big, big difference. Um, when we had the financial crisis and people were buy, buying uh, properties in Fro- in Florida, basically you were putting five percent down payment, ten percent down payment, and ni- and you were leveraging ninety percent. Right. Okay. Now, basically, you have to put 50% down payment in order to get leverage. And most of the transactions so it's right not as now, much of a risk. No, are all cash. Like I'm talking about like 90% of the transactions in South Florida with the Latin American buyers are all cash. What is the hottest market in South Florida right now? Is it Miami proper? Is it, it uh, Yes. So you're talking, about, you're talking about basically, you know, I work between Aventura and South of Fifth. So what that area is the area that the Latin American market prefers. So you have Sunny Isles, you have Bell Harbor, you have 
uh, Miami Beach, you have Brickell, um, and then you have the new markets, you know, um, newer markets, um, you know, which is uh, Midtown, what they call uh, Midtown, uh, the design district. So all of those areas are upcoming areas. Uh, Edgewater, the area also next to the American Airlines uh, Arena uh, is very hot. So those are, you know, and then everything that is beachfront, you have to remember, basically there is lack of land. There is nowhere to build anymore. So, so the value is there. So the value is there. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. So let's bring it back to New York City, predominantly 80% of your business, as you say. So where uh, in um, the, the, the world are your foreign buyers coming from for your New York City marketplace? So that is changing constantly. Um, you know, we used to be very definitive about where people were coming from. You know, it, it used to be Brazil. It used to be Russia. Uh, those were the, the main markets. But now I would say it's much more spread out. Uh, we're having people from India. We're having people from Israel. You know, a lot of exits uh, from the high tech, um, you know, in Israel are happening. And those people definitely want to have properties in New York. Uh, and then you have, you still have the Latin American market, but I would not say that the volume that we had, let's say, two years ago is here. So we have less volume, but we ha- now it's spread out among more countries. How are the Chinese these days? I had Nikki Field here a couple of uh, months ago, two months ago, and she does a lot of Chinese business. Correct. And she said and she's a very good friend of mine. And <laughs> she's a, we love her here on the show. Yes. Uh, she's been on several times, but uh, is that is uh, have the Chinese picked up at all uh, buying here in in New York City, or are they still kind of flatlined? I still see it as a flatline. Um, what did Nikki say? Because you know that's her, her expertise pretty more much, than me. Pretty much flatline, but she was starting to see a little bit more of an uptick. But I think, as you said earlier in the in the show here, are we getting back to that flatline again? I think we all saw a little bit of a bump up, and then it seems to hit, be flat again. So correct. Uh, I think it's time for her to come back and talk a little bit about that that Asian market, which has been very good to the New York City real estate. Anyway, Barbara Corcoran, and I think she said this too, but maybe I'm wrong, or said it in general. You can be the smartest kid on the block, but if nobody knows your name, you are not going to succeed. She absolutely said that, and you know Barbara Corcoran. She's very straightforward. And I, I love even, Barbara Corcoran, I yes. I can even tell mm-hmm. you the moment that she told me that, we were sitting at the Wells Hotel, second floor. I asked for a private audience without anybody around us. We had coffee, and she basically wrote my business plan in a napkin. But let me ask you something. As a, as a fairly new agent, I find it funny because I, I think Barbara Corcoran's an amazing person. Uh, and one of the greatest marketeers in our business. But how did you process that when she said that to you? Because obviously you have an ego. Obviously you've been very successful and, you know, you're not new to the business. How do you process something like that when somebody says to you, if people don't know your name, damn it, you're not going to be successful. It's not going to work. Not only that the people don't know my name, she said that I could be the smartest person, the most intelligent, Mm. and I will still not make it in New York, specifically in New York real estate. You can make it in other markets, but not here. And the reason here is that New York is all about branding. Mm -hmm. It's all, we are all about branding. The same thing, think about Corcoran. When uh, Coldwell or NRT bought Corcoran, you know, they were about to change the name to Coldwell Banker. Right. And at the very last minute, they decided that only in this market, they were going to keep Corcoran, the Corcoran name and not Smart Cold- decision. Absolutely. Why is that? Branding. So I was in shock when she told me that. I was hurt when she told me that because I said, wait a minute, I speak four languages. I came from being a CEO of a major multinational company and you're telling me that I'm not going to make it here? I, I was like in shock. So I basically... You don't got it. 
and basically said, okay, the first thing that I need to do is branding myself. And that's basically what I did the first three years. And she being the the the, the extraordinary brander that she is and, and the Corcoran group from, you know, not that many years ago, you nope. know, starting mm-hmm. out in a living room, you know, as she tells her story of six agents or whatever to the multinational, you know, success it is. But when I read that quote when I was doing research on you, I kind of laughed because somebody in my in my past sort of said the same thing to me in that it's it's all about you and how you brand yourself and how you get yourself out there. And especially in what I call personal business, like we are in a personal business. What we do with people is personal in their home buying, their home selling. It's a personal thing. We're not selling corporate machinery and all that kind of stuff. It's a whole different world. So they have to know you. They have to trust that you're intelligent and smart. And with all that, they can have confidence in you that you're going to tell them stuff that really makes sense. Let's bring it to the to the actual transaction. So there's an expectation in this business that you need to respond to clients within 24 hours, if not within an hour of a text, a, a voice message, an email. How do you how do you deal with that? And, and somebody like you who not only runs a team, but is also personally very busy every day. How do you do that? That's a real challenge every day because it's not only that you have to answer, but the question is, how do you answer and which tool do you use? Some people send you messages via Facebook. Some people uh, leave you voicemails. Some people email. Some people is text. And then we have the WhatsApp because WhatsApp is what everybody international, international exactly. you know, uses. So it becomes a challenge because you have to be constantly checking all of those in order to be able to um, get back to them. Now, you are saying an hour? No, 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 no. That has changed also. If you don't answer within five minutes, okay, the clients start yelling at you. What do you mean? Why, why didn't you call me back? Why didn't you answer? So, unfortunately, we have to be wired um, 24-7. And I also ask for the people that work with me in the team to be on me. Like, if I don't answer, and if they see that, they don't, that I don't answer to pastor me and say, Jackie, you need to get back to this client, please, now. It's extraordinary. Last night I was in my office till very late. I came home and I was trying to get a whole bunch of things together and the phone is in my hand constantly between, and actually I was WhatsApping yesterday <laughs> with a client of mine who's in um, uh, Hong Kong, texting, Facebook, you know, it, it's like it goes on and on and on. And every once in a while when I want to put that device down, I, I start feeling so guilty <laughs> that it's not in my hand. And where is it right now? There it is, right under my papers. And it's not right there. But you're right. If you don't respond within minutes, sometimes people, you know, just say, well, he or she is too busy. They can't get on with this. Well, I want to just something funny to share with you. So I took my two boys to Cuba uh, in January. Ah. And there was no communication. I felt like a drug addict that went into withdrawal. I was basically having panic attacks, anxiety. I couldn't deal with it. <laughs> I, I, I can certainly relate to that. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. But some would say, okay, so you get over the initial I shock, know. and then you're like, okay, fine, it's cool. We only have a few minutes left. I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about your team. So you were, you were like one of the first people in, in our, our town, successful brokers in our town that created a team. You touched on it a little bit, but do you find a benefit in having a great team around you of smart, really hardworking professionals to help you be better every day and to help you get your job done better every day? Absolutely. <clears throat> and when I started in the business, I couldn't understand how people were working. I mean, most of the top brokers at the time basically had showers, had assistants, uh, but they didn't really have a team. Uh, only in commercial real estate, 
um, always right. you worked in teams. Right. So I actually emulated what commercial real estate teams do and how do they work. And I had actually a great uh, mentor for that from the uh, commercial side. Unfortunately, he passed away, uh, Glenn Markman, and he taught me how to put a team together. So I decided basically that not only I cannot do it all, but also I cannot appeal to every single buyer or seller. You know, there are people that you glue with and there are people that you don't glue. So I say to myself, instead of hiring people like me, I'm going actually to hire people that are not like me so that we can cover a much broader uh, you know, part of the market. And most of the teams that I see around me, because now everybody has a team, uh, they actually hire people that are people like them, which in my opinion, it's a mistake. I'm old enough in this business, been around for a long time. I, you're right, everybody has a team, but I always take it back to your team and your new concept way back when, because you start, you started it, and I've always been aware of you. <clears throat> Jackie Toblitsky, I'm glad that you were here today. Hopefully, please come back again. There's so much more Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about. We have to take a break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're back with the panel right after these quick messages. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Everybody, we are back, and I want to say thank you to Jackie Toplitsky for taking time out of her very busy schedule today to come and talk to us here at Good Morning New York. We are back with the panel. Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Zach Boren from Real, uh, Core Real Estate, Phil Horrigan, leasebreak.com, Sean McPeak from Compass, and Perul Bronbat from Compass. So, how is everybody today? Great. Hey, awesome. I haven't seen you in a while. You good? Yeah. I want to hear about that quickly because I'm always amazed when you tell me that you can't talk for 14 days. Yeah, so basically there's no phone use, no computer, no, you know, no Instagram or Facebook, Matt. (laughs) You said with Laurel from just being in Cuba and not having communication. Unbelievable. Like you get to just like actually get quiet and see what happens. 
Could you oh. not talk for 14 days? Yeah. No. Literally? No like, mm-hmm. I would I mean, have a major problem with that. I can't. I mean, it's yeah. not in my DNA. It doesn't, it doesn't become difficult That's after the first Pearl's three days. That's why voice sounds so pure. Uh, it's been purified. So <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway, let's get on with some of our hot topics. And today, Harlem is a hot topic. And I'm interested in here to hear a lot of uh, comments on this. So Harlem is one of the most famous neighborhoods in New York City. Good, bad, or indifferent. But some think the neighborhood's name could be... Uh, could do with a bit of rebranding. So some business owners are involved in a push to change the name in the area from 110th Street to 125th Street, from Harlem to Soha, Soha, S-O-H-A. Now, residents and community leaders are pushing back. I say, what's in a name? So what, 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 are we, what is the controversy over renaming Harlem Soha? They had a reason why they want to rename it. Tell me. I mean, I just, I just feel like me. Uh, I mean, it has such a such great cachet now. The name Harlem. Why would you want to mess with it at all? It's almost, well, it's so cool to well, say. Well, here's from the Harlem. thing. I mean, it, it really comes down to branding. I mean, go back to I don't know, ten years ago or fifteen years ago when Hell's Kitchen wanted to rebrand to Clinton right. or to Midtown West. They try to class up a neighborhood. They try and change you know, uh, an old or a bad perception of our neighborhood. And so Harlem, you know, has had its its times where it wasn't so pristine and so wonderful and so safe. And so I think a lot of people, business owners, want to, you know, class up the name by changing it. I completely real estate developers. I think well, I was just going to say, actually, that, you know, I was personally happened to be involved in this um, when we rebranded um Basically, so a new development I worked on a couple of years ago it was 1285th Avenue, and right. that building technically was like it was considered to be Harlem, Southern Harlem. In fact, on Street Easy, it was labeled as Harlem, East Harlem, and we made a push to change that to Upper Carnegie Hill, East and we Harlem were able still has to a create of being a little cuckoo, right? And so we we and that was precisely <laughs> yeah that was precisely why that rebranding we felt was necessary, and I do think that it really helped in sort of reestablishing that building. Well, I think it's I think it's an identity. I, I was you know I I live in Weha. If we're gonna do all these names, um, I live Weeha, in Weha. Let Harlem, me guess, so. West Harlem. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, one of the developers I'm working with in See, Harlem right now. Well, he was saying that he had a very interesting conversation with one of the people who handles permits and the city government, and it's all an identity thing. Because if you think about gentrification, gentrification is all about having a different identity and making an area be something different and, and something new. And and I think that that's the same with a name. So, you know, part of the gentrification of Harlem and South Harlem, you know, it's, I, I guess I, this, this city person basically told my developer that he's not surprised and he almost expected it to have a name change because of the gentrification. I, I guess don't, I don't see it's too, too much of an established area. I think right. when you when you're kind of starting with a fresh slate like uh, South Bronx right now, they're trying to call it the Piano District. Right now, that's something you can work oh, with. So bro, so bro. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think that's that. going to be good rebranding. Yeah, <laughs> but it's also, but but you, I mean, I will say though, Harlem is a big <laughs> neighborhood. So I, I will say that maybe years down the line, if you think about like the Upper East Side, which is such a big neighborhood, yeah, and break it up. just like Pearl said, yeah, you break it up. You have Lenox Hill, you have Carnegie well, Hill, you have Upper right. Carnegie Hill. Exactly. So I think maybe that's what Harlem will become. But I think it's always going to be Harlem. I don't think there's a What did you say? They want to call it the Piano what? Piano District and uh, we're like Mott Haven, South Bronx. And so. that that relates to piano in what way? I'm kind of like... Uh, they used to manufacture pianos up there. Seriously? So Steinway, yeah. Okay. Oh, Steinway, yeah, yeah. 
But certain neighborhoods, they evolve over time, right? So look at Chelsea, where a crime rate was so drastic back in the day, and meatpacking was not an area where people live. Those names Prostitutes stuck. Prostitutes did. <laughs> That's true. But that those names stuck, and look at those areas now. So isn't there something about... What, and I have to that? say also, like, it, Clinton <clears throat> technically is Clinton. However, I know for a fact that everybody in this room, we all still call it Hell's Kitchen, I, you know? I advertise and, it as um, Hell's Kitchen all the time. Yeah, right, and, and, and it's all, and exactly, in the branding, it's always Hell's Kitchen. So I think Harlem just has so much history to it that I think the rebranding could potentially serve, like, a specific community. I'm not opposed to the idea as long as it's not completely straying away from Harlem. And it's not because the obviously it's so high Southern Harlem. So, I think it'll be slang. Yeah. I, so I, I really think it'll be slang. Yeah. Almost because, you know, not to get out of I New agree. York, but West Hollywood. I think, you know, when we people ho. call it we ho, that's a slang thing. Like, I don't know. It's people right. say that, you know, offhand, I guess. They don't say, you know, well, WeHo all the time in a news article cool, or something. I'm going to WeHo. Right. It's like, okay, so for the person who doesn't know what WeHo is, where are you going? What right. does that mean? I mean, let's be real. I like West Soha. Hollywood. I like Soha and WeHo and all those things more than Chibeca and and like Fibeca, these things. Well, I downtown. think I, it, I it's a play those. on Soho because Soho, you right. know, in the day was whatever it was, but Soho was so branded. And we were talking about branding earlier with, with Jackie. It's so branded to that section or that grid of New York and has become so popular mostly because of the loft style homes there and, and also because of the great, great, great shopping that's there. So everybody wants to kind of play off, I believe, the Soho name and I don't know that it always plays right. I don't think Soha in Harlem is going to work. I just don't. I mean, I was just going to say that silly. it seems to me like here, here's my new theory as I'm thinking about this is that once a neighborhood becomes cool and the people that live there are cool and proud of the neighborhood they want the name that it's always been so for example remember chelsea like so in the in the third in the when you lived like in the 30s you know kind of just north of chelsea people were a little embarrassed to say they lived in the west 30s so they were calling it chelsea north chelsea right harlem now is cool so <clears throat> people want to call it Harlem. Hell's Kitchen used to not be kind of cool for a while. So they, so they were going with Clinton, and the, the people that lived there were maybe okay with that. But then all of a sudden, Hell's Kitchen became so cool, people want Hell's Kitchen. I mean, they want the like original. When it comes name. over gentrified, you want to go back to like the I, old name. You want to totally. Back, yeah. Well, that's exactly. exactly what goes on. Exactly. All right, let's move on. So your co-op has discovered tree roots that have breached the roof of your underground garage and is proposing a five-year assessment to cover the cost of dealing with it. A lot of us know that when you live in a co-op, even a condo, there are special assessments oftentimes that happen. Since these problems are outside the building and are a pre-existing issue, does the shareholder have any options for foregoing the financial responsibility of this assessment? Meaning, I'm not paying this assessment. It's an outside problem infringing on something inside, but I still don't feel like I need to pay this. What's the what's Are the pre-existing conditions covered? Hmm. Let's see. That's a whole topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think unfortunately you have to pay for it. You know, you're 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 in the building. Um, you're a shareholder. I'm sure you. There's a lot of stuff you sign that says that. But let me ask you something. And we and we've all sold no. co-ops here. So when you're representing a seller of a co-op, okay, and there happens, or even a condo, and there happens to be a special assessment, okay, and buyers come into your open houses. Buyers come in you know, through private showings and stuff. And they say, hey, Phil, by the way, you know, the maintenance is $1,400 a month and now there's a $250 a month special assessment. A, what is that about? And B, how long is it going to be? And C, does this building have a history of special assessing for X reason? I mean, it can be very intimidating or it can be a deal breaker. 
I think it also depends on the market. You know, it, it depends on if it's a buyer's or seller's market because right. I think it affects buyers differently in the type of market they're in. I know that, you know, now we're obviously in more, we're edging more towards a buyer's market. So, you know, for example, my clients really liked an apartment they saw two weeks ago and the broker has emailed me four times reminding me that the seller is willing to pay for the assessment. And that would never happen if it was more of a seller's market. Absolutely. So I think it's, it, it, I think it's all perception of how the market is and where it's going and what, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think assessment, you know, like you said, buyers have to know what they're buying into and they're buying a co-op and they're going to be assessments most likely. So you can't well, take it the wrong way. First of all, I want to say this because um, lately I've had a lot of younger, like newer brokers come up and thank me for this show and thanking all of us, saying that it's so helpful to to new brokers. So for all the new That's brokers, why we have seven or eight of them out yeah, in the for room all the, today. Exactly, we have the we have the core interns here. Um, Hello, core interns. <laughs> they're they're bored. They look bored. But Perul, to your point, though, I yeah, get the same thing. Yeah, what I was going, to, yeah, what I was going to say is, um, you know, for young brokers, what is really really important, and most attorneys do this, but especially if your buyer has an attorney who's not exceptionally familiar with co-ops or something. As a broker, it's really important to know that it's in all in the meeting minutes. So the lawyer has to go in and look at the meetings to see what the history of the building is when it comes to assessments. Um, assessments do happen, but if they're chronically happening, that means that they just haven't um, gathered enough of a reserve to cover for these sorts of eventualities. And the building financially is playing catch up, which is not necessarily the building you want to buy into um, or you buy into it knowing that you're always going to have these extra additional costs and then assessing if that's the right purchase for you. You know, aside from a purchase price, which everybody is so focused (laughs) on and price per square foot. And once you get a buyer over that, and I always call it drama, price per square foot. What is the price per square foot? How many square feet is this apartment? It's like, who cares? It's like, do you like it? Does it visually work for you? Yes. Okay. Then buy it. Now, aside from that, good luck get, with that. <laughs> good <Yeah>. luck. <laughs> it's worked. <laughs> Vince is very straightforward, if you can't tell. But the <laughs> thing is, corners. but the thing is, so people then take it to the take it to the monthlies. Okay. So, in a condo, is there a four twenty one a tax abatement? If there is, I'm going to get lower taxes for ten years. Are the monthlies low? Are they high? If they're high, why is it high? Well, there's only 30 units in the building, so the, ma- the maintenance is higher than if there were 120 people in the building, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think buyers out there, and as Matt said a little while ago, depending upon market, really it depends on what the market is to get these buyers, I think, over the drama of what a monthly cost should be or even a, a purchase price. And coming from the other side, Jerome, you know, for those of you here who don't know, I think most of you do, but I'm in the process of buying a co-op right now. Yay. And it's, people should look at it the same way I'm looking at it. If you're getting a mortgage, stop looking at the total purchase price. Like, I didn't even look at the purchase price. I actually looked at the monthlies. It's always broken down the monthlies. I mean, unless you get into like the ultra luxury price points, it's always a monthly payment. That's what drives a purchase price down is like, you know, I have an assessment. It's always that broken down to monthlies. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. hey, one day I will buy a $10 million apartment all cash. But right now, it's make all sure about the monthlies. Make sure you invite me over to see. we got to leave it there. We'll come back after this break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are back live right after these messages. Don't go away. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix. A phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Matthew, Zach, Phil, Sean and Perul. So my question is, often when writing about small spaces in the city, we will come across a studio that has a a suspiciously generous amount of floor space. Okay, just think about it. (laughs) Studio has a suspiciously, I like the choice of words, amount of floor space. Okay, works for me. And then realize behind some of the cabinetry in that room or bookshelves, as you have it, there's a Murphy bed tucked away that you can pull down at night when you want to go to sleep. So how often do you run into these Murphy Ben? The reason I'm bringing this up this week is because, um, you know, I, I had two studios for rent in the building that I always work in. And everybody who came in to see these two studios said, why isn't there a Murphy bed? Why? Oh, I, I find that every time I've sold or helped someone buy a studio, they don't want to see a Murphy bed in there. Like they, they want to see the space. And they want to picture it without a Murphy bed. I'm surprised to hear that. Well, I think what they're saying is they want a Murphy bed so when it's closed, you have all that foot space oh, yeah, yeah. and no bed and then a sofa and a chair and a this and a that because we've all walked into studios where you don't really have any room. I mean, some of them are ginormous, I understand, but you know, we're talking about 400 square feet and you have a queen-size bed and then you have a this and a that or whatever. I, I, my studio, when I owned a studio years ago, I had a Murphy bed and I loved it. Did you put it down every day down. and put it up? Did you put it up Absolutely. every night? You with one finger. That's both. why. Yeah, yeah. They're they're have so you ever easy. seen Vince's arms? That's why he's so buff. I mean, come <laughs> on. No, but really, it, it looked like an armoire. You open the doors, you pulled it down, and behind it was a was a was a mirror. Was were lights, were recess lights. It was a whole. Everything. Sounds like a lot of work. It does. It's not. It's not. It's really not. Though I'm with Vince on this. I literally, there's the latest things to pull down and put up. I don't have big guns. You don't and, have to make. You don't have to make the bed. I don't have bed. problems with Murphy beds. Right, but making your bed you doesn't don't sound have to like make a lot of work either. Close the door, boom. No, no, it's just about but, space, though. Right, but, right. but what I was going to say is I think that's an anomaly more so. In other words, I think it's the people that I've come across, 
they're they're more they have Murphy beds when it's like a pied a terre situation where they're not staying there every night. I find it a little bit more rare to have someone like Vince who every day puts that bed up. I mean, that, that does sound Actually, like a lot of work. I got to tell you, you know, I it I, really, uh, really wasn't. It was, it was, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. But I I entertain a lot, even back in those days, right. in, in a small studio. And you know what? There was a lot of floor space. I mean, you could walk around like you would walk around my living room today, and not you know feel like you're going to bump into right. furniture that really wasn't. It does there. take up space, and it's you're only using it for eight hours a night, right? It takes up wall space, but it doesn't oh, take no, up floor space. No, I'm sorry. When the bed, no, oh, when it's open. I'm sorry. A bed, yeah. takes up a lot of space, a and you're only space. using it eight hours a night when you're sleeping so it kind of makes well, sense here's the thing so Vince um, or, interviewed a Chris Shembra who started the 747 oh, yeah, club yeah, yeah, yeah. and his whole entire model is his apartment's like 300 square feet or something like really small tiny and um, he has a Murphy bed and he puts up the Murphy bed and has a dinner for 16 people at a time in this little exactly. studio which could not happen with that bed however I'm surprised that people sit there and say oh wh- why does this place not have a Murphy bed because the qui- the thing is Anyone can, yeah, anybody can put one in for about a couple of grand. So it's really not that expensive. It is a great space saver um, and a good idea for anybody who's buying There's a studio. There's different types, too. You can have a couch or a desk on the back of it. I mean, it's totally. like a convertible like, totally. contraption. I just had a rental in uh, downtown Brooklyn and... Probably 50, the first 15 people, and there's a Murphy bed in it. And they're, the first 15 people were like, can we get rid of that Murphy bed? Totally. And yeah, it, 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 it's either side. It really yeah. is. The owner didn't want to get rid of it, but the 16th person who walked in there said, oh, I love this Murphy bed. I want it. I'm like, perfect. You know, here, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing, too. I've sold larger apartments, two- and three-bedroom apartments, where people have installed Murphy beds in one of the bedrooms as a guest room. And so it's up against the wall when it's not in use. And when their company comes over, they open it up. Oftentimes, that third bedroom will become uh, an office for, for one or the other, but with a bed behind it. So when, when they had company, the office now converts to a, to a bedroom, a guest room. I mean, I, I happen to think they're great, but, but I do see both sides of the coin there and people really But I do think out. most – I kind of agree with you. that I think most people – Tend not to like them. So, but, but Zach's example was, is yeah. probably more true because than when not. I'm, when I'm selling an apartment with a Murphy bed, I do get more comments and not saying, uh, you know, the apartment would be great right. if the Murphy bed wasn't there. Right. You know? All right, let's move on. The success of any renovation in or outside New York City comes down to the team you hire to do the work. But who exactly should that be beyond a general contractor, right? Depending on the scope and scale <laughs> of your project, you may also need to enlist an architect and or an interior designer. Now, a lot of people in this town, you know, think I can do it all, or I only need a general contractor, or I only need, you know, whatever. Well, what about permits? What about the DOB, if necessary? What about the building-specific requirements? Let's break it down in in the the four or five minutes we have left in the segment for people out there who have renovated, maybe didn't do it right, people who are considering renovation, and how it really applies here in New York City, which just like everything else in a real estate transaction is vastly different than any place else in the world. So I have a more on a, on a funny side of that. But I guess first, obviously, you know, it's especially with co-ops, it's very necessary to have an architect and a contractor right. usually all the time because the board wants an architectural drawing of what's going to happen. And if they have to be file taking with down structural. Right. Depending on what you're doing. If right. You're doing, exactly. Yeah, if you're doing yeah. structural work. Um, but. One of my clients who we're actually closing this week and he's going to be most likely gutting most of the apartment, you know, so he hired one of the architects I suggested, one of the, you know, contractors, they're part of a little team. And so once all was said and done, he started to do his plans. 
Um, you know, he said to me, do you have any interior designers that you suggest? Um, you know, I'm sure you have like hundreds of them. And I actually don't. I actually have one or two, I think. Because I said to him, this is someone that I've known my whole life. And I said to him, most of my clients have taste. Like they know what they want to furnish their apartment with. Like they know colors. They know the the room. Um, and he had no idea. He was like, I could not tell you what couch to put there. I cannot tell you what I want. And I was like, how do you not know I understand what you want? I, I guess I personally don't. I'm such a type A uh, control freak and I love I guess I love design stuff so but I Matt, can, you know as well as I do that when you're showing an apartment people walk in and they can't even understand why this room has four I would, walls I just don't let alone what you're going to put on any of those walls I actually think that there should be like a TV show this. like on HGTV or something about exactly that about like showing an apartment that's staged and then that's unstaged and how the buyer actually reacts because I really, I mean, there are apartments that would sell for like $1.8 million unstaged and like 2.4 staged. But also with, with all, like like Pearl said, with all those design shows on HGTV, how do people not know what they like yet? Because, I don't get be, it. Because I don't know. Like how, don't, how come you're uh, not it's a mathematician? It's like, it's makes like a me very concept to a lot yeah. of people. It's 90, not 90% of the buyers out there, and I'm going to say 90%, and I've been doing this for 15 yes, years, agree, yeah. 90% of the buyers out there, and it has nothing to do with your intelligence or what you know what you do as a profession, but people, and I, I worked in new developments aside from uh, resale where I get to see so many more people than the average broker, People walk into an empty room and say, oh, they don't know what to do with it. I, it well, it has four you walls. Not I only understand. that, even as it's brokers, just... <laughs> I've seen so many brokers, seasoned brokers, see a space when it wasn't designed out and then see it afterwards and just, you know, they have great understanding of space. They understand to a certain degree what that space is going to look like finished up. But even brokers who are so seasoned can walk into that space and be like, whoa, this looks best, so much better than I would have even envisioned. Right? Best brokers and like time. an interior designer on the side. You know, yep. I think, you know, it, you know, you're breaking down problems. You need to outsource to the professionals on a lot of different things, especially I, this subject. I will Which say, though, I there, think I can do. I mean, I, I'm not declaring myself an interior designer. Trust me, far from it. But I do have an eye and I do understand design and I do understand how to lay out a room. Well, you also know your limits too, you know. It's and like, I know my limits exactly, <laughs> right. and that's but I, what I can say. Now you got to take it to the exactly. next level. Yes. But I could at least help. I mean, you I have wonderful interior designers. Whatever. And I, you know, I recommend them that you know everybody, and you know, it's just about assembling the right team and having someone you trust. Because there's a lot of interior designers too that will try to upcharge you and get you to you know kind of purchase. And that's the, that, that was and, the the point behind this question is to make sure that just like in real estate, we have our team, our attorney, our banker, or this or that. Make sure when you embark upon a renovation or just a simple design, because you're not breaking down structured walls and stuff, that you hire the right team of, of designer, decorator, whatever you want to call them, to get it right. Because people in this city, because we live in, you know, in compromised spaces. We don't live in huge 5,000 square feet homes and, and all that. So you've got to make sure that you get that space maximized correctly. But I will say two things about that. First of all, I it's a very interesting thing these days that just happened within the last years that there are now consultants that people can hire to help permitting along, which it's I expedited I, use it for restaurants. Yeah, it's really. I mean, I I don't know if this is kind of a scam a or anything, benefit, but I no, think a great I think consultants that the consultants that are doing it and doing it successfully 100%. are geniuses that they thought of this. Yep. Um, I also will say, I guess I just. I, I agree with what you're saying, Sean. I agree that you have to leave the experts, you know, to do what they do best. But I will say that 
a bunch of new developments, especially in the city that have model apartments that were staged. Um, you can t- I can tell sometimes when I go into a staged model, which ones had benefits from the broker doing the sales. I, I will say, I think we can all agree that a great development is 212 Fifth Avenue, which I know Parole's done business in. And Nikki is amazing. And she helped love the Nikki. staging of the model. And when I walked in, I was floored. Like I could tell sh- a broker well, that's had That's a woman with this. exceptional taste and she's very high end in, in most of our business. So she gets it. You're they right. Have a great, they we have an awesome resale team on that though. I mean, yes, all of them really. They absolutely yeah. did. We got to leave it there. We're out of time. That's our show for today. Thanks to my guests and panel as always. We will be back next week. Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us and I will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.